This podcast contains explicit language. This stage, I was worried, so I was looking for him. And it was only when I was coming to go out the door again that I actually saw him because I was coming back and he was in my torchlight and saw him on the floor, lying on the floor, head smashed in a pool of blood, you know. The man lying dead on the floor was 55-year-old Christchurch scrap metal dealer John Thomas Reynolds. His brother Michael found him late in the afternoon of the 28th of April, 1996. They were good mates and Michael never thought anyone would get the better of his gutsy brother. My brother was, um, he was the sort of guy, he would never walk away from a fight. I, I'm assuming he's hit from behind because you wouldn't hit him from the front and get away with it. He would fight you to the death, you know. John Reynolds' family knew him as a man who was afraid of no one. His suppliers knew him as a hard, often brash man who didn't ask too many questions. He was a wheeler dealer. Money was number one. But there was another side to Reynolds' life. His wife was keen on line dancing and floral art. She kept their home immaculate. He loved to garden and he collected antique bottles and other curios. His idea of luxury was a magnum ice cream, a glass of bourbon and a cigar. He coached netball and was a good father and husband. His scrap metal business, called Garden City Scrap, was in Hazeldean Road, a light industrial area beside the railway tracks just outside of central Christchurch. On a cold, wet Sunday 22 years ago, he went to work as usual. He was expected home for lunch, but didn't arrive. The attack had been brutal. He had been hit repeatedly around the head with a heavy object and left lying face down. It was not a murder to grab the public's imagination. Outside Christchurch, it hardly made the news and the family kept a low profile. And two decades later, it remains a mystery that most have forgotten. Police zeroed in on various suspects. In heavy metal, we hear their denials. I, I had nothing to do with it, and that's just the honest truth. I know all about murder, and in no way would I, I, I couldn't kill someone. I'm Martin Van Bainen, and I've teamed up with investigative journalist Blair Ensor to bring you a new stuff podcast about the Reynolds killing called Heavy Metal. The Reynolds murder will never sit alongside such sensational and controversial New Zealand murder cases like the Crew murders or the Bain family killings. It's an ordinary murder, but extraordinary in its own way. Heavy Metal delves into a subculture of desperate junkies and other fringe dwellers who steal scrap to boost their meagre incomes. It takes you into a culture where the only currency is cash and where only the tough survive. Reynolds may not have been a pillar of the community, but he was loved, and his death by murder caused untold misery, and the effects reverberate to the present day. Heavy Metal shows how a family looks back 22 years later on a killing that would shape their lives. The phone rang on my mother's phone, and she said, your dad's been, your dad's been murdered. 
Yeah, and uh, yeah, I just fell to the floor. That's John Reynolds' daughter, Lara, whose memory of the day her father was murdered is still crystal clear. What is not clear is who killed him. Heavy metal is a search for an answer. Could the killer have been someone from his murky past, or was it simply a quickly planned bash and grab that would frustrate police by luck rather than design? Was it someone Reynolds had offended? The podcast looks at why this apparently straightforward murder has proved so difficult for investigators and whether that vital bit of the puzzle can still be found. Cold cases are disturbing and should never be forgotten. They hang over the police, offend our innate sense of justice and suggest there is such a thing as the perfect crime. Blair started researching the Reynolds case last year, unearthing a raft of information not disclosed to the public before. He obtained original statements from the police file and interviewed dozens of people connected to the case. As Blair discovered, Reynolds probably knew his killer, who was most likely a regular supplier. But police couldn't rule out a random opportunist killing or retribution-style hit either. As we reveal later, Reynolds had a few skeletons in his own cupboard. That is not something that my father was in any way, shape or form proud of. He, he, he was not happy about it. He was very hurt by it. Whatever happened, the killer left few clues behind. There were no apparent witnesses to the killing, nor was the murder weapon found. That vital bit of evidence linking someone to the crime would be elusive. Let's go back to that day in Hazeldean Road. Normally the Christchurch police would have had the resources to comfortably handle the inquiry. Murders aren't common in the city. But April 28, 1996 was not a normal day. Detective Inspector John Doyle, now retired, was off duty and was called in to start the inquiry. On a recent Sunday with the rain pouring down, Blair went to the murder scene in Hazeldean Road with John. John, what do you remember about that Sunday? Well, it was a day that I wasn't actually on call, and I was sitting at home getting ready to watch the Auckland Warriors, actually, just settling down with the family, and got a call late in the day uh, from a colleague to say there'd been a, a, a murder down here in Hazeldean Road, um, but all the available staff, including himself, had been called out to a shooting earlier that day. So I had to sort of get in, get organised, and start getting another team in to uh, commence this investigation. It's also the same weekend the Port Arthur massacre was big news around. Um, so the news of this probably took a little while to get out. You obviously had a number of very strong suspects in this case, uh, and we'll look at them later in the podcast. Why is it, uh, do you think, that after 22 years, though, that no one has been held to account? This was a difficult investigation in that there were so many people had access to this place. Uh, normally you're able to isolate down very quickly who would normally have access generally to a home or a place and then gather your witnesses. This is an, a pretty isolated street for, for Christchurch City. The odd, the odd car goes by, the odd train goes by, but um, on a Sunday afternoon, pretty quiet down here. So you believe the case is still solvable? Always believed it's solvable. Um, there, there will be people there who, who know something Either they haven't put that together 
over time or don't want to. There will be relationships that are broken down and where people protected people for whatever reason who, who no longer have that affiliation or are under that group or person's um, influence. So it's never too late, never too late. Police were quickly able to establish Reynolds' movements on the day he died. He worked seven days a week and was a creature of habit. His life was work and home, and he was not a pub-goer or socialiser and didn't have a secret life. Not as far as anyone knew, anyway. We'll hear later how John talked about being killed by someone from his past. But was he serious? His widow, who's now in her late 60s, and still lives in Christchurch, says her husband was unfailingly reliable. We will be calling her Susan in the podcast, as she does not want her real name used. Blair, you've had a number of dealings with Susan. It sounds like her life has been permanently scarred by the murder. Yeah, without doubt. I mean, look, it hasn't been helped by the fact that the killer has never been caught. She lives alone in a small house and clearly feels very vulnerable. Uh, She's never spoken publicly before about her husband's murder, and... To get her to the point where she'd engage with us, we actually had to sit down in an interview room at the police station with a detective present. Reynolds was the only scrap metal dealer in town who opened his yard on a Sunday when he was open until about midday. Susan watched him head off after breakfast in his white Mazda Bongo flatbed truck about quarter to nine. They lived in Kashmir in a brand new house about 10 minutes' drive from the yard. We'd planned he'd come home, say, I think it was about 1 o'clock, and we were going to go to buy a washing machine. I could set my watch with John. If he said he was going to be home at a certain time, he would be. Reynolds went first to the parkhouse rubbish depot in Wigram to pick up a bath and some pipe scraps, and by half-past ten was having coffee with his brother Michael, an electrician who had his workshop and business in the industrial unit next door. Sundays weren't particularly busy. Reynolds used the quiet time to tidy up and do some bookkeeping. He liked to be home in time for lunch. By the time he was ready to shut his doors on the Sunday he was killed, Reynolds had had at least three customers. All three were regular suppliers of scrap metal to Reynolds and aware he was the only scrap merchant in town open on Sundays. The first customer was Russell Bainton, who arrived about 25 past 11 with his sister Alison. Russell had worked with Reynolds casually in the past, so they knew each other well. The Baintons, like many others, called him John the Palm. Russell, who was an alcoholic and heavy smoker, died in 2010, but Alison remembers the day well. So that morning, we stacked up the car and away we went to the usual place, to John the Palm's scrapyard in Hazeldean Road. And um, we pulled up there and John's usually a happy sort of chap. He greeted us as normal. And um, we were just in there to sell our metal. Yeah, we didn't muck around too much. We are there to give him the metal and, and get the cash for it. So it was just a normal sort of routine. There was nothing out of, nothing different. Went into the office. He always called us into the office to pay us. And, um, yeah, him and Russell were just chatting and I was just standing there. And then um, the metal was weighed out. 
and um, come to I think $47 it was in the end but that morning it looked like John was in a hurry to to get going and close up so he only had a $50 note on him and I remember this big wad of rolls in his top pocket so he pulled out this big wad and paid us the $50 and and joked that he didn't have any change well he didn't actually because he fossicked around looking for change he was he'd give it give the money right to the last cent you know so so he had no change about so he gave us a $50 note and joked that you know we owed him three dollars um, but really he was probably probably quite serious that we did owe him three dollars you know that's the way he was as the Baintons were about to leave a red Morris Marina which had been parked on the road backed in towards the door of the scrap metal yard parking underneath the open roller door the driver was Ben Johnson a big, powerful, unemployed man with a bank robbery conviction who had his two-year-old twins in the car. He was 41 at the time and is also now deceased. Russell Bainton, who knew Johnson from previous dealings, described him in this way in his statement to the police as read now by an actor. I could describe the Maori guy as about 37 years old. Solid build, powerful-looking big arms, about 100 kgs and close to 5'10 tall. Black hair, unsure of length, unshaven, with a moustache, round face, happy looking. Wearing black leather vest, scruffy blue denim jeans, black t-shirt. Just as Johnson was leaving, plumber Simon Walsh arrived in his van, somewhere between half past 11 and quarter to 12. Walsh dropped off some bits of copper pipe and other odds and ends and went into Reynolds' office to be paid. In a statement to the police now read by an actor, he said, When he paid me the $30, he just reached inside the drawer and pulled out the cash. On my previous visit to Garden City Scrap on the 22nd of April, he paid me around $126 for some condensers. On that occasion, I actually saw inside the drawer and all I could see was a thin layer of notes, mainly 20s. Walsh was Reynolds' last known customer for the day. What happened then remains hazy. Alison Bainton, says Reynolds seemed keen to get away and wasn't too pleased to see Johnson arrive. It's almost certain that after Walsh left, Reynolds closed the roller door of his premises and got ready to go home. The roller door had a smaller door for easy entry when it was closed. The smaller door latched automatically when shut and Reynolds also usually locked it with a padlock when he left. But he hadn't got around to putting on the padlock as after his death, it was found in his office. Reynolds' body was found just inside the roller door, suggesting he knew the killer and was relaxed about letting them inside. It's also possible, of course, that the killer had lain in wait and completely surprised the scrap metal dealer. It's known that Reynolds was at least still alive at midday when his truck was still parked outside his factory unit with the keys in it. By quarter past one, the truck was gone, and Reynolds was almost certainly dead. Russell Bainton told the police he drove past the scrap metal yard again just after midday on his way to the Crown Hotel to pick up some flagons of beer. An actor reads part of a statement. I could see John smoking a big cigar I held up three fingers indicating I still owed him three dollars and he gave me a friendly wave. I never saw anyone else. 
It appears then that Reynolds was having a quick cigar before he went home to have lunch and go with Susan to buy the washing machine. But if he was in a hurry, as Alison Bainton suggests, it seems strange he would relax outside with a cigar. It raises the question of whether he was waiting for someone. So what happened? Had someone arrived just as he was closing up and gone into the building with Reynolds, bashing him when he wasn't looking? A number of other scenarios also present themselves, and we'll come to those later. When Reynolds hadn't arrived home for lunch by 1pm, Susan started worrying. The purchase of the washing machine was the main item on the agenda for the afternoon, but Reynolds also had some work to do at home before they could go shopping. She phoned the scrapyard about 2 o'clock and kept ringing for the next hour or so. No reply. Just after 4 o'clock, she drove to the messy workshop Reynolds didn't like her to visit. I just felt there was something wrong. And um, I went down and I seen this man working in his office and I knocked on the door and um, asked him if he'd come down with me to see if we could find my husband. That was what... But anyway, he was a tall guy and, and we looked in the window. But no, couldn't see him. It was cold. I just felt cold, cold inside. He wouldn't have gone shopping or anywhere else. Like so, most men, he probably hated shopping. He did. <laughs> Particularly for a washing machine. Yeah, he, <laughs> he used to tell my mum that um, I'd walk a mile to spend a cent. So you turned up there, was it, was it open, were the doors open? No, 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 it was all locked up and his truck wasn't there, I'm sure it wasn't there. And. Um, Yeah, I just had this feeling, and it was eerie. Michael Reynolds remembers getting several calls from an increasingly worried Susan during the afternoon. The next time she rang up, she said, oh, I've been round to the yard and his truck's not there. I said, well, you know, that doesn't mean anything to me either. He's probably out in the truck, obviously out in the truck, picking up a load or whatever. She said, oh, we're supposed to be going for a washing machine. But I mean, at the time, I didn't think anything about it. He's a big boy, he's a tough boy. Uh, the last thing I thought was, is there anything wrong, you know? And then the next time she rang up, it was about 5.30 or something at night. And then I thought, oh, well, it obviously is something wrong. So that's when I went round to the yard and had a look. Parked out the front with my van and the light shining on the door, went in, turned off the alarm and then I had a torch and I wandered around, went into the office, turned the lights on and I went into the next room and there's a upstairs, I went upstairs and I went everywhere basically looking for I don't know what. And uh, cause scrapyard, there's 44 gallon drums and tarpaulins, there's crap all over the place, you know. And I sort of, this stage I was worried, so I was looking for him. And it was only when I was coming to go out the door again that I actually saw him, because I was coming back and he was in my torchlight. And I saw him on the floor, lying on the floor, head smashed in, pool of blood, you know. 
And then when I saw the body, I went up to the body and knelt down and put my hand on, on his back. Sort of just why you would do that, I don't know. It's just an instinctive thing. Michael says he was initially treated as a suspect because police had heard he owed his brother money and wondered if his movements around the factory unit were really him covering his tracks. However, it wasn't long before he was eliminated as a suspect. It turned out that Reynolds was the one who owed money to Michael. Michael had the unenviable job of breaking the terrible news to Susan. I just couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe that that's what had happened. Reynolds' daughter Lara had last seen her father about a year before his death. She was 25 and living in Auckland when her mother rang her from Christchurch. I'd meant to come home for Easter, but I, I went over to, I think, Melbourne. And, um, no, Melbourne was at Sydney, I can't remember. And I remember thinking, I should be home with Dad. I should be home, I should have gone home. I'd always had a bad feeling about Christchurch. When, whenever I would touch down in Christchurch, I'd, I'd, like I'd get a bad taste in my mouth. It was hard to explain. It was really hard, but I was just had this overwhelming bad feeling, like this foreboding. Yeah, and then after Dad was murdered, it lifted. On, on that, that morning, I'd felt, I'd, really, I was at home, I was feeling pretty, um, I felt really lifeless in the morning. Anyway, and then my mum phoned and she said, I'm worried about your dad. Then I went out um, during the afternoon to Mission Bay, I had a coffee out there, and I, I came back. It was about four or five o'clock, I think, I can't remember exactly. And then my mother, I, the phone rang and my mother phoned, and she said, your dad's been, your dad's been murdered. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I just fell to the floor. I just felt like the, the whole world had been just yanked out from underneath me. Yeah, and I, I think I was screaming. It was not a pretty sight. She flew down that night and made Michael take her to the factory where she had loved being with her dad. So I went there that night and then I went back the following morning on site to see my dad. He just looks very alone and I didn't like it. He was lying face down in a pool of blood. And um, I'm not a very religious person, but I just did a prayer for him. That night, John Doyle got his team together and started making a plan for the investigation. Recently, out on the scene in the rain, he told Blair how the investigation shaped up at that early stage. You, you follow a bit of a pattern with all of these investigations and there are a number of things that have to happen at once. So there's a lot of work done here down at the scene, a lot of work done around the area, looking for people who were there that day and then following up leads from, from uh, a variety of sources. You can't afford to throw everything into one thing. Can you talk me through, John, exactly what had happened to John? Yeah, John, John had been hit uh, a very violent, sudden blow to the head uh, that completely incapacitated him and probably killed him at that point. Um, there was no sign of a struggle. 
um, he was in the process of closing up for the day. He was he was probably writing up notes. He had to keep dockets. Um, and whoever came in cannot have been of great concern to him. Um, he probably knew them um, because he was a man that if a stranger came in, he would be a little bit more wary of that person. But it just looked to me, to, to us, that he, he was just carrying on his business. In the weeks after the murder, Susan went into a form of shock. A shock she wouldn't recover from for a long time. She and John had met when she was working in her sister's dairy. And John used to come in and he used to ask for banana, the milk of the shake, because he's, he's English. My niece and I, we used to um, think it was funny. And we used to have a good laugh when he went out. But unbeknown, and he used to bring his nephews down, but unbeknown to me, to me it was me that he was interested in. And that's how, how we met. So what was it about John that sort of captivated you in the beginning? I don't know. <laughs> no. Um, I just seemed, um, you know, pleasant when he came into the dairy and um, we could have a conversation and, um, and I was unattached at the time. And, um, yeah, and, and that's, he asked me out and, and that's what, how it went. The couple married in 1967 and had two children, daughter Lara and a son who had special needs, which led to Reynolds being a keen fundraiser for the IHC charity. The family was a good team and the murder of her husband left a huge gap in Susan's life. I didn't cope really and then I decided right I'll go back to um, line dancing because that was my interest. Did you dance with John? No, help no, he will not, oh no, he wouldn't dance. Yeah. I went a couple of times and, you know, because you enjoy yourself and you're line dancing. And I got guilty because I was dancing. It was like dancing on his grave. So one particular night, from, I just went home, closed the door, and I was I was stayed in my bed for about a year. So time went on. It was a long time. I just didn't go out. I used to call Pizza Hut. Pizza all the time. Susan struggled with depression, but with the help of a devoted sister who said a prayer for Susan every time she left the house, Susan started living again. She remembers her husband as someone who was frank and forthright. And he was um, pretty straight up, and he was very very straight, straight, and he called a spade a spade. And people either loved him or didn't like him for, for that. When I say rough around the edges, there, there was no frills with him. You know, he'd go out once a year, say, to buy us some clothing, underwear and that stuff, and that was it. How did he dress? He used to wear um, army pants. Mind you, that was... <laughs> That was because they had a lot of pockets and could hold his money. <laughs> it's not funny, is it? But he loved cigars. I was going to ask, did he smoke, did he drink? Did he, he drank a little bit from time to time? Yeah, he'd have, a, I think it was whiskey, a glass of whiskey at night. And a magnum ice cream. 
Yeah. Every night? Just about, I'd say. We knew what to get him for birthday yeah. and Christmas and Father's Day. Cigars. <laughs> Reynolds tended to shield Susan from his work and discouraged her from visiting the yard. Scrap metal trading and the desperate types who brought him scavenged metals operated in a different world to his life with Susan in their immaculate Kashmir house. In the next episode, we'll look at Reynolds' trading practices. He let suppliers put down false names and didn't ask too many questions. John was as confident as they come. We hear more from that supplier in the next episode. We'll also look at Reynolds' intriguing past. Had someone come out of the woodwork seeking revenge? He said to me, he said, he said, one day I'm going to be killed off. If you want to get in touch with the heavy metal team, please email heavymetal at stuff.co.nz. To subscribe and download more episodes, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher or Spotify. Heavy Metal was researched, written and presented by Blair Ensor and me, Martin Van Banen. Recording was thanks to the Broadcasting School at ARA and editing was by Alex Liu. Our executive producer was Catherine Goldsworthy. For more on the John Reynolds story, visit stuff.co.nz forward slash heavy hyphen metal.